All right, how's everyone doing this morning? Yeah, I, uh, just a little side note, those uh, journals I always thought was really funny. I'm not much of a journaler myself, um, so when the whole idea like, hey, what do you guys, what do you think about coming up with like journals for every, I'm like, this is the lamest idea in the world, you know, in my opinion. But uh, as I kind of got into it and started seeing just like the proofs and all the stuff that was coming out, I'm like, man, this is actually really cool. I, it's kind of inspiring me now to, to want to, maybe this is just like prototypical male, like can't express his feelings or emotions or anything like that. Maybe writing it down will help. So I'm pretty pumped about that. Uh, I'm going to get uh, pretty excited about it when we uh, go ahead and start next year with the, with the reading. So uh, this morning, uh, I want to almost kind of do like a part two from last week. Uh, if you were here last week, you know Jonathan talked about uh, a message. His title was, uh, Don't Be an Atheist. Yeah, so this is kind of part two. And, and part two is, Don't Be a Christian. And you're like, what the heck are you talking about right now? Should I be an atheist or should I be a Christian? You know, I'm saying, I'm not saying don't be a Christian. I'm saying don't be a Christian. Ah, oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't listen to the message last week, uh, you can go ahead and check it out online. Uh, I would highly encourage you to do that. Uh, if you are listening to this message and you're like, what the heck are you saying? I'm using finger quotes when I'm saying Christian, so just so you're aware. Uh, and you're probably thinking, like, what the heck? Like, I, I was thinking last week when Jonathan was talking, he was talking about atheists and agnostic, and in my mind I was like, really, there's not a whole lot of difference between what people say when it comes to like, their practical atheism and Christians. Like, there's really not a lot of distinguishment. Like, why is it that that's the case? And so... I kind of went in and, and uh, looked at some statistics. I, I love stats. It's one of my favorite things. And so Barna, the Barna Group actually uh, is an amazing resource. They do statistical research on a whole variety of different issues, a lot of it relating to faith, uh, the church, the, the relationship that, uh, that God has in people's lives. And so uh, here are some of the statistics. These are, uh, th- this is part of their study on the state of the church. of Americans identify as Christian. That's a lot. 73%, three out of four people in the entire United States. 20% no faith, 6% identify as other, and 1% are not sure. They're the non-committal type. So uh, what I found amazing from this was like a quote. There was a follow-up right from these statistics that were listed And this was a follow-up quote. It says this, Even though a majority of Americans identify as Christian and say religious faith is very important in their lives, these huge proportions belay the much smaller number of Americans who regularly practice their faith. So you're like, what does it mean to practice your faith? Good question. That's going to be answered here in this next paragraph. When a variable like church attendance is added to the mix, a majority becomes the minority. When a self-identified Christian attends a religious service at least once a month, I have a, I don't know if you notice, this is a little pop culture reference for you. That's uh, the Jean-Luc Picard from The Next Generation facepalm meme. Uh, he's just like, what the heck? Like, what, what, what are you talking about right now? I, I thought, I was thinking that exact same thing reading this. Where was I? When a self-identified Christian attends a religious service at least once a month, once a month, 
and says their faith is very important in their life. Barna considers that person a practicing Christian. After applying this triangulation of affiliation, self-identification of pra- in practice, the numbers drop to around 1 in 3 U.S. adults, 31% who fall under the classification. Barna researchers argue that this represents a more accurate picture of Christian faith in America, one that reflects the reality of a secularizing nation. And that's what they said. So, uh, Sawyer, can you pull up the next one, the chart? Yeah, just to kind of drive it home a little bit more, right? So, of the, of the Christians in the United States, the 73% who say that they're a Christian, they identify as a Christian, only 31% are practicing Christians. The other 42% are non-practicing Christians. I'm like, what is a non-practicing Christian? Like, I don't even know what that means. Like, that, that's just like... Like, I don't even know how to say, like, what to say. Like, I don't even know what to, to think about that. But then I also thought something else. When I saw the, the 31% statistic, I was thinking to myself, wow, that's really high. That's really high. Like, and if you think about it, the definition was, if you attend church once a month and you say that faith is really important to you, you're a practicing Christian. That's like scraping the bottom of the barrel right there like man like what is like the minimum standard that we can get by so that we see like some you know good representation of this so from my perspective uh, I think this is kind of funny because uh, when I attended graduate school I went to KU for graduate school I was studying mathematics out there and uh, uh, got my graduate degree and and uh, I fell in the category of a practicing Christian uh, in fact, I was like your over-practicing Christian, if you want to call it that. Uh, I attended church every single week. Sometimes I'd go uh, more than once a week. Uh, I said faith was super important in my life. Uh, but it's funny because that was just on Sundays. That was just pretty much on Sunday or whatever day I was attending or going uh, to Morningstar, our sister church in Lawrence. The other days of the week was... Uh, pretty much just self-absorbed. I think the biggest problem that I had was uh, I was obsessed with uh, my identity, putting it in what other people thought of me. I thought that was the most important thing in my life. Uh, If it means on Friday and Saturday night I have to go out and get wasted and spend time with my graduate school buddies, all of whom are atheists, and seek their approval, I will do whatever it takes to find that approval. I'll do that. And I did do that. Fridays and Saturday nights, I'd go out, get wasted, show up to help serve on tech team on Sunday mornings, completely hungover. And the kind of running joke was, man, you really like drinking a lot of coffee on Sunday mornings. Like, why is that? Well, it's like the only way I can get through this thing, man. Like, honestly, like, I got such a horrible headache right now. This is like the only, like, thing that's helping me out. That was me. I was a practicing Christian, according to the definition. I was a practicing Christian. And you know what it took, surprisingly, the three years I spent in Lawrence, it took one night, I was at the bar on Saturday night, which was our kind of normal routine, I was at the bar, my atheist friend, he knows that I have to go to church in the morning to serve, so I'm like, hey, I can't be out too late, got to go to church, and we're like literally getting wasted, so it's, you know, kind of hilarious to him. Uh, He says to me, he's like, dude, you're a horrible Christian. 
Yeah. My atheist buddy says to me, you're a horrible Christian. And that night, I was like, huh. He's right. I am a horrible Christian. And then that started the process of six months of really trying to understand, okay, like, who, who am I? What am I saying I believe? Like, is this really true? Is it who I am? Am I a Christian? Am I just saying the word, or am I actually living it? You know, because there's a huge difference between those two things. So really, this morning, what I want to do is just draw attention to uh, the danger of the ditches. Like, so, uh, imagine this. You're driving on the road. There's ditches on both sides of the roads, right? The goal is, obviously, to stay on the road. You don't want to go into the ditches. Uh, I think a lot of times the tendency is, uh, as uh, Christians have a tendency of kind of swerving all over the road and going in and out of the ditches, like, all over the place, like, all the time. So, uh, my attention is to hopefully, like, point your attention back to the lines on the road. This is the direct will of God. This is what he says. And so, in order to do that, we have to understand what are the ditches. Like, what, what exactly is that like? Um, so, the first one I am going to call the Princess Bride Ditch. Princess Bride Ditch. Anyone in here ever see the, the Princess Bride? Okay, if you have not seen the Princess Bride, go see the Princess Bride. Rent it, do whatever you have to, you should see this movie, it's incredible. Um, little backstory, uh, Princess Bride, so uh, uh, Buttercup is the name of uh, this woman who is betrothed, she's going to be married to uh, Prince, what's his name, Humperdinkle? Humperdink, right. The names are hilarious. Um, but the thing is, she doesn't love him. She was actually in love with Wesley, who was a hired hand who worked for her, but he ended up, uh, he went and died at the hands of a pirate, like five years before that. So she's like working through this, and she goes on this horse ride to like clear her mind, and then she's kidnapped. Seriously, this is like an amazing story. You should watch it. It's hilarious too. I'm telling you right now. Um, so she's kidnapped, but one of uh, the guys who kidnaps her, there's, there's three guys. One of them is like the brains of the operation. The other guy is like entirely the brawn, and you'll know exactly who he is when you see him. Uh, he's Andre the Giant, for those of you who don't know. He's like seven foot tall, 500 pound guy. He's huge. Uh, and then there is Inigo Montoya, who is the expert swordsman. Uh, there's backstories to all these guys. It's incredible. I'm not going to go into it, but... Um, I wanted to lay that out before you because the brains of, of the operation, uh, I think his name is Vizzini, he, uh, he has this like saying, and he says it a lot of times. And so, uh, just watch the clip. Let's just watch it. I do not think it means what you think it means. I think that's like the perfect characterization of uh, this ditch. You keep using that word, Christian, I do not think it means what you think it means. The Princess Bride dish, this is characterized by uh, really a lack of obedience. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking specifically about, you know, if you're like just kind of learning what it means to follow Christ, you're just like, man, I, like, am I a Christian? I would say this, there's, it's not like necessarily disobedience, but it's more just kind of like ignorance, you know, that's, you just kind of don't know what's what. There's a difference between those two things, right? 
There's a difference between, I just don't know and I'm trying to learn, as opposed to, yeah, I know it's right, but I just don't want to do it. Right? There's a huge difference between those. And so I think that's really the big characterization of the Princess Bride ditch. It's just a lack of obedience. Uh, the next one is the hashtag oversaved ditch. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to show this clip. Uh, there's a funny skit uh, by a comedian by the name of Michael Jr. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he's hilarious. So funny. Um, but he, just do a YouTube search of this later and watch it. He talks about people who are hashtag oversaved, um, where it's just like everything is just over-spiritualized to the point where it's just obnoxious, you know? Like, um, for example, it's like, hey, man, like, you want to go get, like, a, a pizza? I'm kind of hungry. It's like, well, you need the bread of life. Like, you need, you need Jesus in your life. I'm like, okay, like, you know, like, I lost my keys. It's like, you need the keys to the kingdom. Like, no, like, okay, like, dude, I need my keys to my Acura is what I need. Like, not, he, yes, okay, I agree, right? But it's really just kind of like, over-spiritual, not really, like, relatable, kind of just like, oh, man, that's like nasty taste in my mouth, you know? And so this is really characterized by a lack of relatability or realism. Like, real situations, dealing with, you know, uh, real problems. There's a, you know, a person who uh, supports me financially. We, uh, we raise support to be on staff here with our ministry, and and uh, there's a guy just this last week, just last Sunday, his, uh, he's been a huge part of our family supporting us. Uh, his wife just tragically died uh, of cancer. Found out literally like two days after Thanksgiving and found out she had two weeks to live and ended up dying literally just on Sunday last week. And it was just so tragic. And I think like for me, it, it was really hard because I really wanted to give him just words of encouragement and just stand with him and be there for him. But at the same time, I know that there were people who were around him who were just being, like, oversaved, you know? Like, oh, like, everything happens for a reason. And, and it's like, okay, like, that's true, but it's so not helpful and it's so not practical. You know what I mean? It's so unrealistic, like, for what the guy is going through right now. And, and just... I think like this is sometimes a tendency where you can fall in one ditch or the other. You can be really like just disobedient, like I don't care, I'm just going to do what I want. Or you can be, uh, you know, like just really impractical or really unrealistic about people's situations. It can be kind of both. And the funny thing is, I don't really think that it can be like one or the other. I think a lot of times it's like both at the same time. Like, I don't know how you can split your body and be in both ditches at the same time, but a lot of times that can happen. And in fact, what we're going to do is just read a story in the Old Testament that's a really good indicator of this. Uh, this is in uh, 1 Samuel. I, I just want to point something out. We're going to read two chapters in 1 Samuel. It's a lot, okay? Uh, I picked a translation that was really easy to follow, uh, so hopefully this is going to be good for us. I'm going to stop periodically just to kind of point at a few things to keep an eye on. Uh, you might see some kind of uh, visual indicators of like, hey, I should pay attention to this section. Just bear that in mind. Um, so, so bear with me as we go through this, right? It's talking about Saul. Saul, not the New Testament Saul who planted churches in 14 cities, but uh, Saul in the Old Testament who was chosen to be the first king of Israel. The interesting thing is, 
you see Saul in his life, he's, he's flipping almost between these two ditches uh, so periodically. So let's start. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5. The Philistines rallied their forces to fight Israel. Three companies of chariots, six companies of cavalry, and so many infantry, they looked like sand on the seashore. Uh, by the way, I want to point something out. In the chapter preceding this, uh, the chapter preceding this or the chapter before, I can't really remember exactly, but um, Samuel, Samuel is the one who essentially is a prophet. Uh, he's been helping Saul through this initial process of becoming king, and he tells Saul, listen, uh, you're going to have like this, this whole scenario laid out before you. Wait seven days. When I get there, we will sacrifice an offering to the Lord. I will be the one to sacrifice this offering, but you need to wait for me. Okay? Bear that in mind. That's very important. So, they went up into the hills and set up on camp of Michmash uh, east of beth When the Israelites saw that they were way outnumbered and deep in trouble, they ran for cover, hiding in caves and pits, ravines and brambles and cisterns, wherever they, wherever. They retreated across the Jordan River, refugees fleeing to the country of Gad and Gilead. But Saul held, uh, held his ground in Gilgal, his soldiers still with him, but scared to death. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. Samuel failed to show up at Gilgal, and the soldiers were slipping away, right and left. So Saul took charge. Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. He went ahead and sacrificed the burnt offering. No sooner had he done it than Samuel showed up. Oh, man, horrible timing right there. Man, jumping the gun. Should have just waited a few more minutes. No sooner had he done it, Samuel showed up. So Saul greeted him. Samuel said, what on earth are you doing? Saul answered, when I saw you, I was losing my army from under me, and that you hadn't come when you said you would, and that the Philistines were poised at Michmash. I said, the Philistines are about to come down on me in Gilgal, and I have yet, to, uh, yet come before God and asked for his help. So I took things into my own hands and sacrificed the burnt offering. Samuel says that that was a fool thing to do, Samuel said to Saul. If you had kept the appointment for your God commanded by you, now God would have set firm and lasting foundation under your kingly rule over Israel. As it is, your kingly rule is already falling to pieces. God is out looking for your replacement right now. This time, he'll do the choosing. When he finds him, he'll appoint him leader of his people, and all because you didn't keep your appointment with God. At that, Samuel got up and left Gilgal. What army there was left following, followed Saul into battle. They went up into the hills from Gilgal toward Gibeah and Benjamin. Saul looked over and assessed his soldiers still with him, a mere 600. So I don't know if you, uh, if you saw, there were thousands of soldiers that were with Saul, and they're all retreating. They're all running away. They're all scared. They see the size of the Philistine army, and they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. So they all run away. Saul's freaking out. He's like, man, we got to do this right now. We, got, we don't have no time to spare. So he completely goes ahead, and he disobeys Samuel. He's disobedient. He falls into the princess bride ditch. He's disobedient. He's not following uh, the command that God set before him. So he go, goes and does it. Samuel says, wait, you disobeyed, and as a result now, your kingly rule is going to fall apart. Your kingly rule is going to fall apart. You're, you were being disobedient. The very next chapter, this is chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Later that day, Jonathan, Saul's son, said to his armor-bearer, Come on, let's go over to the Philistine garrison patrol on the other side of the pass. But he didn't tell his father. Something to point out. There was a, a, a Philistine campment, encampment 
the Israelites are down below. Uh, there's this pomegranate tree. We're going to read about it here in a second. All the soldiers are underneath it. And Jonathan's like, you know what? Like, I think the two of us, we can, we can climb up this steep embankment with all these jagged rocks and cliffs and everything. Let's just kind of like check it out. Um, you know, let's just go see what happens. But he didn't tell his father. Meanwhile, Saul was taking it easy under the pomegranate tree at the threshing floor on the edge of the town of uh, Geba, or Gibeah. There were about 600 men with him. Ahijah, wearing the priestly ephod, was also there. That's kind of important. I'll point that out here in just a second. You're like, what the heck is an ephod? Honestly, like, a lot of times when I read through these verses, I'm like, that's just a random throwaway fact. Like, okay, thanks. You know, see you later. Keep going. Just kind of pass on, right? It's like this dude who's wearing this ephod. What's, what the heck is an ephod? An ephod essentially is a, uh, it's a priestly garment. It's something that uh, the priest would wear, and essentially it was used as a way of uh, hearing instruction from God. So the priest is wearing this ephod, you know, a, a GI is wearing this, this ephod, and Saul is like, okay, I'm not making that same mistake again. I'm not going to disobey. I'm going to be, I want to clearly hear from God on this. So he's got his, his priest wearing the ephod. And when uh, God speaks the, through the priest, then that's the instruction for the people. So essentially Saul's waiting for God's instruction through the priest who's wearing the ephod. Does that make sense? It's like, okay, we got, we got to go by the book here. Right? We didn't go by the book last time. That was a, a, a fail. I'm not going to do that. We're going to go by the book this time. So this is what he does. No one there knew that Jonathan had gone off. The pass that Jonathan was planning to cross over to the Philistine garrison was flanked on either side by sharp rock outcroppings, cliffs named Bozes and Senna. The cliffs to the north faced Michmash. The cliffs to the south faced Geba. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on now, let's go across to these uncircumcised pagans. Maybe God will work for us. There's no rule that says God can only deliver by using a big army. No one can stop God from saving when he sets his mind to it. His armor bearer said, go ahead. Do what you think is best. I'm with you all the way. I just, I love that so much. It's like this guy who, uh, in the chapter before, it actually says that there's not a blacksmith found in the land, so they were super short of like swords and so people actually had to use like pitchforks and like their gardening hose and all that kind of stuff to actually like fight in these battles with 600 people and this giant against this giant Philistine army so they're just like this armor bearer it's likely that only one of these dudes was carrying a sword like it's it's possible that that was the case like that one of these dudes was carrying the sword but it's like hey like Jonathan's like there's no rule like we didn't hear God say, you can't do this at the same time. So, like, let's just, let's just go see what happens here, you know? Let's just go check it out. And his armor bearer is like, I'm with you all the way, man. Like, I got your back 100% all the way, no matter what. It's, like, so good when, like, when you've got somebody in your life that's got your back like that, you know? It's so amazing. I'm with you all the way. Jonathan said, here's what we'll do. He's kind of making this up on the, on the fly as he's going. I'm with you all the way. We'll cross over to the pass. Let the men see we're there. If they say, halt, don't move until we check you out, we'll stay put and not go up. But if they say, come on up, we'll go right up. And we'll know God has given them to us. This will be our sign. So they did it. The two of them 
They stepped into the open where they could be seen by the Philistine garrison. This is like super risky, right? They go up, they're like, hey, guess what? We're here. There's only two of us, you know? It's like, you could easily just get killed, you know? You could easily get killed. The Philistines shouted out, look at that. The Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then they yelled down to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up here. We've got a thing or two to show you. Jonathan shouted to his armor bearer, up, follow me. God has turned them over to Israel. It's like, there's thousands of them and the two of us. And it's like, hey, God's already set his plan in motion. We got him. It's like, dude, like, what? Like, I mean, honestly, think about that. There's two of us, thousands of them, but it's like the faith that he exerts, because he's already said, this is going to be the sign. If, if God's going to do this, this is what's going to happen. And it happens. So he's like, all right, like, I'm still going to have faith. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep going. Up, follow me. God has turned them over to Israel. Jonathan scrambled up on all fours, his armor bearer right on his heels. When the Philistines came running up to them, he knocked them flat, his armor bearer right behind them, finishing them off, bashing their heads in with stones. In this first bloody encounter, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed about 20 men. That set off a terrific upheaval in both camp and field. The soldiers in the garrison and the raiding squad badly shaken up, the ground itself shuddering, panic like you've never seen before. So all mayhem is completely breaking loose because these two guys were like, hey, there's no rule that says we can't do this. Let's, like, let's have some faith. Let's go up there and see what God's going to do on our behalf. You know, okay, let's do this. And they go up and, and start unleashing God's fury, literally. Okay? So just bear that in mind. The next part is kind of funny. We're going to get back to Saul here just to see like, what's happening in the life of Saul. Saul's sentries posted back at Geba in Benjamin saw the confusion and turmoil raging in the camp. Saul commanded, line up and take the roll. See who's here and who's missing. When they called the roll, Jonathan and his armor bearer turned up missing. Saul ordered Ahijah, bring the priestly ephod. Let's see what God has to say here. It's kind of funny because it's like, you're hearing all the upheaval that's happening right over there. You know something insane is happening. Like, I don't know really what's going on, but I need to clearly hear from God right here. It's like, wait, what? Like, something amazing is going on, okay? Like, why don't you just go check that out? Why don't you, like, use a little bit of the faith that God has given to you, go check out what's happening, and see, okay, should we maybe go up there? Bring the priestly ephod. I have to hear from God clearly. Okay, let's see what God has to say. While Saul was in conversation with the priest, so they're literally talking, they're having conversation, the upheaval in the Philistine camp became greater and louder. So you're hearing like just total mayhem happening over here, and it's like, I need to hear from God here. I need to hear from him. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's speaking through the cries of your enemies over here. Like, you know, there's something happening that you need to kind of pay attention to. Then Saul interrupted Ahijah, put the ephod away. Saul immediately called his army together, and they went straight to the battle. When they got there, they found total confusion. Philistines swinging their swords wildly, killing each other. Hebrews, who had uh, earlier defected the Philistine camp, came back. They now wanted to be with Israel under Saul and Jonathan. Not only that, but when all the Israelites who had been hiding out in the backwoods of uh, Ephraim heard that the Philistines were running for their lives, they came out and joined the chase. God saved Israel. What a day. 
you kind of, in two chapters, you see both of those tendencies happening, right? You see the disobedience on one side. I'm just going to do what I want. I need to, we need to make the sacrifice because I'm losing, you know, it's, it's like, oh my gosh, like all this stuff is happening. You know, we're losing our soldiers. I need to, I need to appeal to God right now. Then on the other hand, you, you see the oversaved side, right? Like, I need to really hear from God on this. I really need to hear from Him. What's interesting in both of these instances is this, that both of them required no faith whatsoever. No faith whatsoever on the part of Saul. It didn't require faith. He was going by the book every single time. Even the first time, it was disobedient. He wasn't going by the book. He wasn't exerting his faith. The second time... He was going by the book, but he was going by the book without any faith. Right? You see the difference in those two? The interesting thing about this story that I love is that Jonathan is going and he's exerting his faith and he's saying, hey, if God works for us, awesome. If he doesn't, awesome. Regardless, I'm exerting my faith. I want to believe that God has something powerful and that's the way I want to live my life. And and it's just, it's awesome when you see that story and you're just like, man, that's the kind of faith that I want to live with, you know? It's so inspiring. It's like, I want to have that kind of faith that it's like, even if my life is at risk here, I want to lay it down and I want to say, God, like, I want to live with that that level of faith where it's like, no matter what, in the day-to-day, in the hard decisions, in all of the in-between, I want to live with that level of faith. So that pattern of disobedience and over-spiritualizing everything is actually repeated throughout the entire book of 1 Samuel where you see uh, the, uh, the story of Saul it, all the way up until his death. Um, he he kind of just keeps weaving in and, and it's, it's like a roller coaster, but the, the, the valleys and, and the mountains, they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The ditches, he's just going even further into the ditches. And you can see that whole story laid out. So what does this mean for us, practically? How does this uh, help us? How can we actively avoid the trap of falling into uh, disobedience or over-spiritualization? Here's what we need to do. We need to learn to listen, really. We need to learn to listen. In both instances, really, you see just a lack of listening on Saul's part. Just a lack of listening. We need to learn to listen to God, to what he's saying in each of our lives. And I'm not talking in a real spiritual sense. I'm talking like, hey, like, man, today is just horrible. It's not good. It's, I've had a really bad day. God, like, what do you have for me? And just really feeling the encouragement, you know, that you're, you're seeking from God. You're seeing that encouragement from him. We need to learn to listen to others, right? Jonathan had the, 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 his armor bearer to back him up in this. He had wise, godly counsel in his life. Like, yeah, like, I'm with you all the way. We need people in our lives who are able to sound off on really major, important life decisions, right? Um, I, this is, sounds kind of stupid, but like any kind of purchase that I need to make that's over $200, I'll ask somebody for advice. Hey, like, what do you think about this? Practically, like, is this a good idea? You know, like... If it's a really big expense, you know, my, my wife and I, we're currently in the process of buying a house. It's like, I'll talk to probably 10 people about it. Like, I need that input from people. And not just the input that's like, 
yeah, man, you're amazing. You're the best. Like, whatever you decide is going to be awesome. It's like, I want people who are going to confront me and say, dude, that is like a stupid decision. You know? People that I can be uh, in their life, they can be in my life, and I can be honest with them. You know? Like, that's what a true friend is. It's somebody who you can be honest with, that you can say, no, that's a stupid idea, man. Like, I think you should not do that. What are you thinking? Or, yeah, like, I think that's a really... A friend is not someone who agrees with everything you do. Let me just say that. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen... This is kind of off the, you know, cuff here, but... uh, American Idol, it's, like, so funny to me. Like, these people who are, like... Yeah, all my friends tell me I'm, like, the best singer they know. And you go and you see the audition, you're like, she needs some new friends. Like, it's kind of embarrassing. You, know, you just embarrassed yourself on national TV. It's like, yeah, you need some new friends. Find friends who are going to speak into your life and not just kind of tell you what you want to hear. That's the mark of a true friend. So Saul, in the first part, listened to Samuel, who heard from God, but he didn't obey. And in the second part, he tried listening to God through the ephod, but without faith. So we need to learn to listen while exerting our faith. I think the the mark of this is real simple. If it's a really hard decision and you know you have to sacrifice something, that's what it means to live with faith. It's really, it's sacrificial right? And even that's like not only just in the decision making, but living every day of your life where you're just like sacrificing who you are, not only for uh, the betterment of just seeing God come here to this earth, but also in the betterment of other people's lives, right? You're exerting faith, and that does something for other people too. Like other people need your faith. I don't know if you know that. Other people need your faith. So lastly, we also need to learn to listen while we work. While we work. Uh, I think there's a fallacy that ministry is reserved for people who uh, are uh, paid to do it. It's a job, right? In the church, the mark of a Christian, not a Christian, but a Christian, is that ministry is an active part of every single one of our lives. That who we are, that not only in our words, but also in our actions and our, uh, the way we carry ourselves, that that has influence and impact on people unlike anything that you have seen. A lot of times, the way that we work and the way that we carry ourselves honestly speaks more than the words that come out of our mouths. You know? One of the greatest compliments I ever received, you know, when I first started where I moved from KU graduate school, uh, my time there, I shared about it a little bit earlier, to Manhattan in 2012. I was working at Civic Plus here in town. It's a small startup tech company. And uh, it's kind of in the process. I still was living in that lifestyle that I had at KU the first few months that, uh, that I lived here in Manhattan. And, and it was kind of a, uh, just a trial, just kind of working through a lot of that stuff. And um, eventually it just God got a hold of me, and I repented, and I'm like, you know what, I just want to be working this job, and I want to be doing absolutely the, the very best I can. Uh, I want to be, you know, speaking just life to people in, in all circumstances. Uh, and it was, honestly, it was hard. It was really hard to do that just in the workplace. And I remember when I left, when I made the decision to leave, uh, to ultimately 
uh, go into vocational ministry, uh, there was somebody from another department that uh, I was friends with. He didn't know that this was uh, this transition was going to happen, that I was going to be leaving, and and uh, uh, my my superior, my boss, told him about it. That hey, like Rob's going to be leaving. I don't know if you know that. And uh, Jim, his name is he. He basically was like, you know, I could totally see that. You know, that's I could really see that. Like that seems like that could be really like good for him. And to me, that was like the biggest compliment anyone has ever paid me. And the reason why is because he saw that in the job where I was when I was working. You know, not only through the work I did, but also through the, the way that I carried myself. And I think that's, that can be so true for all of us here in this room. A lot of us, you know, probably 99% of the people in this room are not called into vocational ministry, but you are still called into, into ministry. All of us. Every single one of you. And that's so important. So here's what we want to do. What I want to do. Now we're running pretty late. So I'm actually going to forego this. But uh, here's what I want you to think about this week. Have a conversation with somebody, okay? Uh, Here, I was going to do some table discussion questions. But think about this. Have a conversation with somebody this week about these two questions. Number one, are there any areas of disobedience that presently exist in your life? That should be a fun question. I can think of like five for me right now. So, you know, I'm working on this too, just just so you know. I'm not like perfect. In what ways do you tend to over-spiritualize things that could push people away rather than bringing them close? This one might be a little bit more subtle. You might need actually a little feedback on this one, you know? So like, man, like I'm not over-spiritual. I just love God with everything that I have. It's like, okay, well, you know, maybe you should talk to somebody and see what they think. Yeah, anyway. Uh, one thing to practice this week. So, talking about learning how to listen. Practice this week. Have one conversation this week with somebody by only asking questions. I'm saying conversation. Only ask questions. Learn to listen to other people. You know, that's a a way for you to invite them into your life. Ask only questions. And only do it, this is a caveat, don't do it with anyone in this room. Because literally the conversation is going to be the the dumbest conversation in the world, right? You're going to be like, hey, like, so how was your week? Man, how was your week? It's just, that's, you know, like, yeah. Well, I really don't know what to think about, like, what, what God's doing right now in my life. Well, you know, have you thought about this? Or it's just like, oh my gosh, like, that would drive me insane. So have a conversation with somebody this week that's outside of this room, but it's only by asking questions. And really, that's, that's important, just a way to learn how to listen to other people, to God, to, to just really start making that a habit and a pattern in our lives. Um, little side note, Jesus uh, in the Gospels, is asked 183 questions, direct questions. Do you know how many questions he asked in return? 308. It's almost double. It's uh, pretty close. He's asked 183 questions, but he asks 308, and he only answers three questions directly. So bear that in mind. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much just for who you are. 
God, that you're with us, you're for us. God, I pray right now that this, uh, this, this would just be conviction for each and every one of us, God, that um, we wouldn't be finding ourselves in, in the two ditches, the one where we're disobedient, God, or the, the other ditch where we're just, man, we just, we're not listening, God, we, we're oversaved or over-spiritual. God, I just pray that we'd, we'd be running down the, the center of this road perfectly in the, in the center of your will. You'd be leading us, you'd be directing us, God. I pray that we'd be using other people around us as voice pieces to speak into our lives. Um, and God, I just pray that this would be just an opportunity for people just to connect and reach out and, and engage in just a, a way that's not just a habit, like I have to do this or this is what, what I have to do, but God, it's just exerting faith and really believing that you want to grow us not only just numerically here, you, you want to grow this community not just numerically, God, but just in the way that you're, you're shaping and molding each and every one of us. God, I just pray that that would happen this week. I pray that uh, your will would be done, that we'd be actively and uh, passionately pursuing you and, and engaging with other people. And God, I, I thank you so much that you spoke today. We thank you. We love you. In your name, amen.